Well, good morning, church family. Go ahead and turn, if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, and we'll begin with verse 13. As you're turning there, I am happy to report that a team of experts installed this microphone on the side of my head before the service, um, so it, it should stay put. I'm a little concerned about what's going to happen following the service. I don't know what kind of process there's going to be to get it off, but it should be there um, to get us through. Um, if you weren't here last time I preached, the thing was just flying all over the place. It was a mess. Um, so if you uh, look at your bulletin or on screen, the sermon title this morning is not actually going to help you. Um, I'm really bad at sermon titles, and when I started working through the, the material and wrestling through this verse, I, I just sensed that, um, that God was taking us in a slightly different direction, so don't pay any attention to that title, and you'll be fine. Um, so let's, uh, let's jump in here. Um, if, you are, if you're a Christ follower, God wants you to know that you are saved. That is the heartbeat of this passage this morning. If you are a Christ follower... God wants you to know that you are saved. Many of you suffer with doubt that ranges from annoying to terrifying to paralyzing. One Christian research firm said that two-thirds of Christians face doubt concerning their salvation. And I want you to know that if you are a Christ follower, that fear, that doubt is not from God. He is our Father, and He loves you, and He desires that you live in the warmth of that love. When we read today's text and its context, that is the pulse that we will sense beating through these verses. Now, as I, when I was in Bible college, an evangelist came and spoke on our campus in chapel, and he spoke from this passage, and he spoke in such a way that, that about a third of the campus came forward to be saved that morning. Now, now, these are men and women who had surrendered to the ministry. They were Christians. I imagine in a crowd the size, there was probably about 900 of us there. I imagine there were some who weren't believers. Maybe they thought they were. Maybe they came there because their parents sent them there, hoping the Bible college would straighten them out or whatever. I don't know. But a third of the, the student body came forward uh, to receive Christ. The preacher was saying things like this. He would said, if you're 99% sure, you are 100% lost. Has anybody ever heard... A statement like that. And he's pulling it from, from this passage. He said this. He said, some people blame their doubts on Satan. I can't think of any reason that Satan would cause a Christian to doubt their salvation. Now, I was terrified. I'm sitting there in the stands listening to this guy preach, and, and he's looking at this text, and I was scared to death. What if I'm not saved? But this was the second crisis of faith I'd had. When I was 16, I became convinced that I wasn't really a Christian. I grew up in a preacher's home. I'd received Christ at a very young age, five years old. And at 16, I was wrestling with doubts. And, you know, as 16, you got all kinds of different things going through your mind. And I'm going, a Christian shouldn't be thinking about this or wondering that or struggling with this. And I went forward following the service, and I told my dad, I need to be saved. I'm not saved. And so he took me through the plan of salvation, and I said the prayer for a second time. And then after I was able to calm down a little bit, I began looking back on my life, and I thought, you know, I, I think my faith was genuine. I think I was just confused. And, you know, and as long as I was struggling with, am I really saved, I was a completely ineffective Christian. I, I wasn't a witness when, when I wasn't sure that I actually possessed the thing I was trying to give away. So there's a lot of reasons why Satan would put into the mind of a believer that seed of doubt, maybe you're not really saved. And so I replayed those things in my mind as this preacher is up there saying, there's no reason why Satan would cause a Christian to doubt his salvation. And I thought, well, sure there is. Sure there is. Absolutely. Satan wants to make us weak and ineffective. And doubting our salvation is one of the most powerful ways he can do that. Now, many of you have experienced this. Some of you may be experiencing it now. And you were a little nervous earlier when, when our sister Lynn read the text. You're like, oh, no, it's this one. Right? Um, and, and you're terrified. You, you heard it earlier. You'll hear it again soon. This stern warning on the final judgment. God will say to some, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And you're sitting there sweaty, not just because the AC's not working real well, but because you're going, what if, what if that's me? There are three groups of people who will hear this warning this morning. 
Number one, there are some who have never repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. You know you're not a Christian. These words are for you, and I urge you this morning, take this warning seriously, and today, put your faith in Jesus. The second group are those who have had some sort of religious experience, and you think you're okay with God. Maybe you've been in and out of church. Maybe you've been in this church, and it's just kind of been something you do, a social thing that you do, or something that you feel like you're supposed to do, and you're counting on your involvement in church, or your good works, or religious practices, or God's gracious nature, but you've never repented. You've never truly put your faith in Jesus And this warning is for you. And I urge you, listen carefully this morning and put your faith in Jesus. But the third and largest groups consists of those of you who have trusted Jesus. You are walking with him. You have repented. You've cast yourselves on him. But that nagging and persistent voice keeps saying, but did you really? Are you really his? And I want to help you doubt that voice more than you doubt your salvation. I want to help you learn how to put your faith more fully in the trusted work of Jesus and to say this, I want to say this, God wants you to know that you are saved. So this morning we're going to see a stern warning followed by three gracious tests. So let's look first, the stern warning, examine your salvation. Look with me in verse 21. It says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now we're starting in the middle of the text because this is Jesus' main point. We tend to communicate ideas in a linear fashion, right? In the Western world, we like to make a proposition or a statement, and then we illustrate it, and we we define it, and we um, apply it. Well, the Semitic way of communicating doesn't always work that way. It's more uh, nonlinear. And so what happens is Jesus begins with a couple applications of his warning. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian, and he illustrates that and applies it in a couple ways. And then he gets here to the heart of it verses 21 through 23, where he gets to his main teaching point, uh, very direct. And his warning is this, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Now, since we're not Semitic, we're going to work through the text the way our brains work and start with the proposition first and then get to our our applications, okay? Um, So the, the warning consists of three parts, and you'll see these in your bulletin. The first is this, the inadequacy of lip service. Verse 21 begins, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. As people who take doctrine seriously, we are tempted sometimes to evaluate our faith by how well we can articulate it. Like we can explain the cross, we can explain what Jesus did, um, but that doesn't mean we actually possess it, right? We can say the right things, we can check off all of the doctrinal blocks, But the ability to articulate is not the same thing as possessing. So John Stott points out four ways that this statement is very admirable. It's a beautiful statement, and he gives us four reasons why. Number one, he says it's polite, right? Lord means sir or king or ruler. It's appropriate to address Jesus in this way. So there may be someone here who who you don't actually walk with Christ, but you know enough about the faith to properly address him. And you'd never use his name in vain, and you refer to him as king or lord. It's a polite statement. Secondly, it's orthodox, right? Jesus is the king of kings. It's very well, uh, it very well may be that the, the professor in this verse recognizes who Jesus is theologically, but has no relationship with him, addresses him properly, but does not know him. Third, it's enthusiastic, He says, Lord, Lord, the repetition of the address, it implies an exclamation mark. He's very excited to call on him, right? He's excited to come in and sing songs and raise your hands and and praise and all those trappings of religious faith. It enjoys that, but the substance isn't actually there. It's as if the speaker wishes to draw attention to the strength and zeal of his devotion. And fourth, it's public. Right? This person's not ashamed to tell people of his desire to be associated with Jesus. These are all admirable things, 
but it's not enough. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, these words are not a magic spell. These words are a confession. And if the confession is not true, the words are of no effect. So how do we know? How do we know if our confession is genuine? So hold on to that question. That's what we're going to be walking through uh, throughout the morning. The second part of the warning here is this, the inadequacy of human effort. Look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Prophecy, exorcism, and many mighty works in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, I don't know you. Think of a life like Ravi Zacharias. I hesitated whether or not I should name different teachers directly, but I benefited so much from Ravi Zacharias's ministry. I imagine many of you did. Very admirable the way he was able to open God's word and make things so clear, and, and by all accounts led countless thousands of people to Christ. And yet, after his death, it was revealed that it was, he had all kinds of just absolute wickedness hidden in his life, hidden in the background. Now, I don't by any means assume to know the, the nature of his soul, his relationship with Jesus. I don't know if he was truly a believer or not. That's not my business to even question or speculate on. But in the end, his private life was in stark contradiction to his confession. It did not mirror the works he accomplished in Jesus' name. And I shudder to think what faces him and men like him on the day of judgment. I don't know. It's scary. It should give us pause. It should cause us all to stop and reflect when we read these words. Didn't we do these great things in your name? People can do great works in Jesus' name because the name of Jesus is powerful. God's word is powerful when it's open and preached. It accomplishes what he sends it to do. But being a part of that process is no indication of the personal relationship of the preacher. And it's a, the right question to ask, am I truly his? Don't count on your good works to get you there. There's an emptiness and inadequacy in our effort, even our best things. And we, we, can't, we should never look at the effect of our ministry as evidence that we're truly his. Third is this, the necessity of obedience. That's the third part of the warning. Look at uh, verse 21, the, the second part of verse 21. Well, we'll just read the whole thing. It says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who does the will of my Father. That's what matters right there. Are you doing the will of the Father? And when we read that, we're tempted to say, oh, well, look at the ministry. Look at the effect that my life has. Look at the effect of my witness. And that's why we need to keep reading, right? Because he says, prophecy, exorcisms, all those things that people, someone may look at, that doesn't matter. What is the will of the Father? That's the question. The Gospel Coalition published an article called how to Survive the Scariest Passage in the Bible. It was about these verses. So earlier, Jason congratulated me on having a normal text. It's not about murder or, or uh, adultery or the other things that I typically get to preach about here. He said, hey, congrats, you got a normal text. And the Gospel Coalition says, no, that's the scariest passage in the Bible. Now, I think that's gross hyperbole. I don't think it's actually that, um, but it just struck me funny. Um, and they say this. It's frightening to think about going to hell. It's even more frightening to find out too late that you're going to hell when you thought you were going to heaven. And still more frightening to think that it's not just a few people, but many who will have this experience. Some people think they're Christians. They call Jesus Lord. They even do mighty works in his name, and yet they're not truly saved and never were. When reading this passage, it can be tempting to throw up our hands. Who then can know if they'll be saved? It sure seems like a huge gamble. You do your best to follow Jesus, but who knows whether you'll get smacked down in the end. Do you feel like that ever? Right, and we read this text, and that's, how it, that's the sense of it at first glance. 
But the author, Justin Dillahay, he points out two keys in the text that can give us confidence in our confession. Confidence to know that when I said, God, I'm a sinner, save me, he saved me, and I will stand before him one day. The two things are this. Number one, recognize what it means to do the Father's will. That's the key here. When Jesus said that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees back in chapter 5, he wasn't meaning just do what they're doing but better. It was a different kind of moral morality, a different thing he was calling us to, a different kind of righteousness. He was, not, he was talking about um, the, the righteousness described in the Beatitudes, right? A righteousness that is poor in spirit. We come to him with empty hands, knowing that all we have to contribute to our salvation is the sin that made Jesus' death necessary. It's a righteousness that mourns over sin. We mourn over our own sin. We mourn over the effects of sin on creation. It is a righteousness that hungers and thirsts after more righteousness. This is the heart of one who does the will of the Father. Did you come to him with empty hands? Do you yearn for greater holiness in your life? That's the one who does the will of the Father. The second thing he points to is this, recognize the primary knower, right? What does Jesus say in the very end? I will declare to them, I never knew you. As important as it is to know God, it is more important to be known by God. Mercifully, Scripture tells us how we can know that we are known by God. Galatians 4.9 says, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. So I encourage you to look at your relationship with him. Is it based on your effort, your work? Is it based on, look at all these great things I've done? Or is it based on that simple communion? You and God. You coming with empty hands saying, I have nothing to give you. And I receive your grace. If that is the foundation of your relationship with him, this says you're his. He knows you. You're his. When I was in seminary, I worked with a man who was uh, at at a job I was working. And this guy was living with his girlfriend. They attended church together. They would often travel cross country to attend worship events like Chris Tomlin concerts. It was really confusing. This guy's living with his girlfriend and they'd go, let's hop in the car and drive from Missouri to Florida to go hear Chris Tomlin sing. Um, The two of them volunteered in the church's uh, children's ministry um, or they they wanted to. They they went up and said, we want to serve in the children's ministry and the church refused to allow them to because of their immoral living situation. And they were very angry about it. Uh, He claimed to not understand it. He played the victim and cast his church as the victimizer. Now, I don't want to presume his motive or his salvation. Um, I'm only speaking of of what is apparent on the surface of of his life. See, one who loves God, when confronted with his sin, should, I dare say would, demonstrate a hunger for righteousness. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, this thing in your life doesn't look right, That's what we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. Sterling's been walking us, Sterling and Jason have been walking us through um, how to help people change, how to help people grow, right? And and we were talking about confrontation this morning when we open God's word and work with a person and go, hey, this doesn't look like gospel in your life. Someone who is known by God will hear that and, and respond in a way that demonstrates a hunger for righteousness, a hunger for growth. This, I believe, is the strongest indicator of whether or not Jesus is talking to you in these verses. How do you respond to biblical confrontation? Do you come to him spiritually poor, seeking repentance and obedience? Or do you come to him seeking his justification for what you're already doing? The text then gives us three gracious tests how to examine your salvation. So there's a warning, are you his? Now let's find out three gracious tests on how to examine your salvation. The rest of this passage, Jesus gives us four images or metaphors that help us translate the warning into our everyday lives. So four metaphors provide three tests of your salvation. Number one, retrace your steps. How did your journey begin? And it's the metaphor of the gate. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, when we read this, our, our legalistic brains very easily interpret the passage to mean um, whatever external demonstration of the faith is important to us. For some, it's evangelism. If you're an evangelistic type of person, you say, well, every Christian should be leading people to Christ. And that's true. And we can make that the litmus test on, on, on are you on the narrow way? Are you out there evangelizing? Uh, we can put other, other standards, uh, kindness, Bible translations, right? We say a true Christian uh, would, wouldn't talk to people the way this person does, or a true, person should, a true Christian should be reading this translation of the Bible. And sorry, that's my background, so that's where my brain always goes. Uh, but I've heard more than one preacher talk about those kinds of external litmus tests and say there's a broad way and there's a narrow way, and the narrow way always happens to be whatever his hobby horses are. And that's where our brains simply automatically go when we read this. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about at all when he says there's a broad way and there's a narrow way. In the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan refers to the gate where Christian began his journey. Does anybody remember what it's called? The gate that Christian walked through in the Pilgrim's Progress? It's a weird word, the wicket gate. Now, when I've heard it, when I was a kid and like my mom was reading it to me, I heard wicked. No, it's wicked with a T, the wicked gate. And he's drawing from his own era when cities and castles were protected by walls. The wall would have a, has a gate. If you've ever seen a castle or one of those city walls, right, there's a, a big, broad gate that could open up and allow carriages and horses to pass through. But that broad gate was typically kept closed. And within the broad gate, there was a very small gate. Only one person could pass through at a time. And that gate was called, you guessed it, the wicket gate. And that's what Bunyan sees when he read this text. That's what he saw in his mind was a wicket gate that would have been common in his era. This gate, um, only large enough for one person to pass through at a time. And this gave the guards ample opportunity to examine each person who entered. Right? There's not going to be a flood of people walking through. There'd be one at a time. And if they're looking at papers, they could look at papers. If they're doing, hey, I don't know you, who are you? Or if they're looking at uniforms, whatever it is, they, each person who passed through will be examined by the guards before they could enter the city. So when Bunyan read Jesus' words, uh, his mind didn't go to arbitrary external standards, but a spiritual test. Has your confession been examined and found genuine? Bunyan's interpretation is not unique to him. When Christianity came to Norway about the year 800 AD, the early missionaries built wooden churches, and they called them stav churches, which is named after the, uh, the architecture uh, that they were built with. Much like the stained glass windows and cathedrals in other parts of Europe, these buildings were very symbolic. Everything about their, their structure uh, illustrated something. They depicted the, the gospel through these images for a largely illiterate people. Now, I got to tour one of these, a replica of one of these churches a few weeks ago when I went up to North Dakota with Joel for his, uh, to get him to his first duty station. They rebuilt one uh, from, because there's a whole bunch of Norwegians up there, and they rebuilt one of these churches in Minot, North Dakota. So one feature of these churches is drawn from this passage. The door into the church is about as wide as this pulpit. It's very narrow. Only one person can enter at a time. And when they're communicating the gospel to an illiterate people, they wanted to give them all these pictures of what the gospel is. And so when you walk into that church, you don't walk in with the faith of your parents on either side of you. You don't walk in with your pastor. You don't walk in with the friend who brought you. You walk through alone. And the purpose of that is to illustrate to the people when you come to Christ, it's only you. It's your faith. It's a narrow gate. There's only room for one at a time to walk through. No one else's faith can save you. Your faith in yours alone determines the destiny of your soul. In John 14, 6, Jesus identifies himself as the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the narrow gate. Jesus says there are few who find it. There's only few. So if you are questioning your salvation, if you wrestle with those doubts, I encourage you, the first step, retrace your steps. 
Are you his? Do you follow him because your parents brought you to church? Do you follow him because a friend brought you? Do you follow him because you find the fellowship warm and inviting? Or do you have a personal relationship, a personal walk with Jesus Christ? Did you begin your journey in Christ through your faith in him? Now, again, we see here in the text, Jesus says this, that there's only few who find it, right? The gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, I ask, is Jesus speaking prophetically, or is he speaking to the current audience and that generation? Because if you look at church history, if you follow the growth of Christianity from first to the 21st century, there's just an explosive, inexplicable growth of Christianity. If you look, and we may not see it in Western society, but if you go south, if you go east, you find the gospel gaining amazing inroads with people. The church is growing so quickly in China, in Iran, in places where it is actually oppressed. The gospel is still continuing to move forward. And so when Jesus says the way is, is narrow and there's only few who find it, I think he's talking to people about those around them. He's calling people to himself and in their society, there's only going to be a few who follow. And we follow that out through the Gospels. But then the church in Acts just explodes and keeps growing and growing and growing for the next several centuries. Um, right up until today, it's still growing. In Genesis 15, 5, God promised Abraham that his descendants, which Paul interprets spiritually rather than nationally, will be numbered like the stars of the heavens. He says you can't even count them. There's going to be so many people, so many people following um, of, of Abraham's seed, you won't be able to count. Revelation 7, 9 through 10, John looks about the throne room of heaven, and he says, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, if you read the New York Times, you may be convinced that Christianity is in retreat. And that can be very discouraging, especially for those who question their own salvation. Is this thing real? Does this thing work? And if you read the news, you may, that's going to feed those doubts. If you look at your neighborhood, you may be convinced that your faith is a small minority. But if you look at Genesis 15 and Revelation 7, and if you look at the growth of the church throughout the centuries and around the world, yeah, it's a minority, but there's a lot. There's a mighty throng gathered around the throne singing these praises. These are our brothers and sisters, and the story isn't over yet. You're on the winning team. Keep walking with him. Many will perish, but we do not need to despair. Rather, first, examine how your faith journey began. Are you riding the coattails of someone else's faith? Or did you enter the narrow gate of personal faith in Jesus? And then second, we, we should be busy pointing others to this narrow gate as the way of salvation for them as well. The second test is this. Test your teachers. Who disciples you? Verses 15 through 20 uh, paint this picture for us. And there's two metaphors here. Um, if this was an English class, we call it, what, mixing metaphors, or what do we say, right? When you start off with one picture and jump to something else. Um, but that's what he does. He gives us two illustrations. He gives us the, the pictures of a wolf and the, in sheep's clothing, and then the picture of, of fruit growing on trees or bushes. Now look at verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. There are religious teachers, there are pastors out there, Let's face it, they're frauds, right? They're not who they claim to be. They look and sound like pastors, but they are predatory in nature. Now, those of us in ministry cannot help but read this with a bit of panic and ask, what if I'm one of them, right? I mean, Hobson, I'm not alone in that, right? When you read this, what if I'm one of them? 
Um, but this passage, it's not actually a warning for potential false pastors, although it feels like that. The way Jesus presents this, it's a warning to all of us to be careful who we listen to, to really pay attention. Who are my spiritual guides? Who do I follow? Who do I listen to? And in the internet age where you can get a podcast of anybody who's out there, we need to have discernment and be careful who we're listening to. Just because they're on TV or have a popular podcast does not mean they're teaching truth. We need to examine these teachers and make sure we're being discipled by people who are being faithful to God's word, who are being faithful to the gospel. As you consider your own salvation, consider who you listen to for spiritual guidance. So how do we identify a false prophet? How do we do this? I was as I was looking through the commentaries, it's really fascinating. Like, everybody who wrote a commentary on this has very different approaches to how we actually discern who false prophets are. Um, Kent Hughes uh, had some excellent helps. We're going to look at just, just two um, helpful guides to kind of walk through it. So Kent Hughes gave us four doctrinal tests. So examine the doctrine. If you're looking at a, a preacher, a teacher, look at the doctrine. Are they teaching truth? So four doctrinal tests. Uh, for the note takers, sorry, I have tons of lists today, so you're gonna, your hand's going to get tired. Uh, but the, the first of his doctrinal tests is this. He says, a false prophet avoids preaching such things as holiness, righteousness, justice, and the wrath of God. Right? He says that this false prophet will probably never say he doesn't believe these truths. They just don't come up often. And the main emphasis of his preaching is God's love, which he fails to keep in balance with God's justice or wrath. And so I don't know about you folks, but I can think of more than one TV preacher who loves to talk about God's love and has a big smile and a warm and inviting voice and presence. But be careful. If this person doesn't also warn you, I mean, this text this morning, it's a, it's a lengthy warning. There is a judgment and if you're not right with God, if you don't have personal faith in Jesus Christ, if you don't have a relationship with him, you will enter eternal judgment. And if your podcast of choice doesn't remind you of that, it's probably not something you should be listening to. Second, he avoids preaching on the doctrine of final judgment. So he's talking about, one, just God's wrath against sin, but also the final judgment, ultimate judgment, eternal judgment. Jesus frequently warned his listeners of hell. He, in fact, told people that he alone has authority to send people there, warning people of the truth of hell. Your preachers should do the same. Third, he fails to emphasize the fallenness and depravity of mankind. I'm thinking those preachers must not be parents. I don't know. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. Uh, just kidding, kids. You guys are great. Uh, he said, he said, I once heard a prominent clergyman say he never preached on sin because people already know they are sinners. And Hughes says that's a very questionable premise. What they need, he said, is to be built up, to be made to see their potential. He said he never used the word sin in his preaching. Prophets like this do not actually believe the biblical assessment of man's predicament. We preach what we believe. If we do not preach it, it is because we do not believe it. And then fourth, his fourth test is this. False prophets de-emphasize the substitutionary death and atonement of Christ. They may talk about Christ's death on the cross, but they do not have the vicarious substitutionary atonement in view. And because of my work, I oftentimes participate in, in ecumenical services, and I was in an ecumenical Good Friday service a, a few years ago, and the, the lead pastor who was putting this thing together talked a lot about Jesus' death on the cross, but he talked about it as an example, right? An example of how to suffer well. And he talked about it as an example of non-retribution. And that was it. That was Good Friday. There was not a single mention of Jesus went to the cross for you. Your sin was placed upon him. He died on the cross to purchase your freedom from sin. It didn't come up on Good Friday. It's so hard to sit there and not jump up and say something. Um, Maybe I should have. But nevertheless, be careful who you listen to. There are a lot of preachers, right? And Scripture talks about it, to people having itching ears, right? And we, we go after sometimes the preacher who makes us feel good, the preacher who comforts us. And there should be comfort in good preaching, but comfort that's based on truth, 
not ignoring the truth of God's word. Now, I agree with everything Hughes said, but, I, and I, but there are many false teachers out there who are entirely orthodox in their doctrine, yet still predatory in nature. Uh, John Bloom talks about this kind of teacher, and this is really important um, right now. Uh, and, and we'll talk about why in just a second. But he summarizes false teachers under three headings. Number one, he talks about their wolfish aim. Right? They're sheep's and wolves' clothing, or I'm sorry, they're wolves in sheep's clothing, and they, they have this wolfish aim. The text describes them as ravenous wolves. And I looked up the Greek word for ravenous, and it meant ravenous. I'm like, that's not super helpful. Thanks. But, but it seemed to emphasize like a, a wildness, their wild nature. They can't be tamed. And so you think of a wild animal who's just out there on the prowl, and he says that's who these guys are. They wrap up and look like a sheep, but they're predatory in nature. So their wolfish aim is self-indulgence, self-promotion, or self-preservation. Now, as I imagine most, if not all of you know, the Southern Baptist Convention has been rocked by these scandals of sexual abuse where there have been abusers in the pulpit who have taken advantage of people in their congregation, and then others in leadership have hidden that fact because they're trying to preserve some movement or some organization that they find very, very important. And meanwhile, people suffer. The flock suffers. For years, these things have been covered up and hidden and washed over. When one abuse victim came forward several years ago, a prominent leader referred to her as a satanic distraction from the mission. Let that sink in. Out of love and obedience to his father, Jesus went to the cross because sacrificial love of the flock is the mission. And when a hurting, wounded, victimized member of the flock came forward to say, a wolf in sheep's clothing hurt me, other people stepped in and said, that's a distraction from the mission. That is predatory, that is wolfish, that has no place in the kingdom of Christ. None. Watch out for these wolves in sheep's clothing. And again, I I imagine, I mean, I know some of the names associated with these things, very orthodox in their doctrine. They would check probably all, if, most if not all, of Kent Hughes' doctrinal tests, but there is something rotten on the inside. Secondly, their sheep-like clothing. This is the image of theological certainty or controlling leadership that gives the appearance of courage. Now, this is what I grew up with a, a lot of this in the, cult, in the circles that I grew up with. Very strong leaders who would stand with absolute confidence and, and proclaim the word, their interpretation of it with no room for question or disagreement or uncertainty. Uh, comedian Mark Lowry, I hope you all know him. If you don't, look him up. He's great. Um, he was talking about his upbringing in the same circles that I grew up with, and he said this, our preachers weren't always right, but they were never in doubt. I love that. It's funny. It's lighthearted. But the reality is this is a kind of legalism that is what Jesus is talking about here. These are wolves in sheep's clothing, right? They they claim to know and love the gospel, but what they're promoting is themselves and an agenda that's not from Scripture. They preach man-made standards as if they were oracles of God. And the reason many of you struggle with doubts of your salvation is because these artificial morals have been sunk so deeply into your spiritual understanding that the fact you don't measure up to an impossible standard makes you question your faith. And I am sorry that you have had to carry that weight. That is not from God. Jesus says of that kind of teacher, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land and make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I have seen so many who grew up under this kind of preacher surrender to the ministry because he told them to. And when they get out into the real world and try to do what he was doing, they find it all an empty shell and fall completely away from the faith. If I I opened up my college yearbook and walked through how many of these guys have fallen away, not just not in full-time ministry, but fallen away from the faith, it's shocking. It's scandalous. 
because it was built on personality. It was built on man's agendas, not on the gospel, not on scripture. Beware of false prophets. And then Bloom points us thirdly to their recognizable fruit. And this is what Jesus says. This is the other metaphor in this section, right? He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So their recognizable fruit, it may look like a, a lack of personal holiness, Right? And so let's think back to the scandals we've been talking about. A pastor does not become a sexual predator overnight. There's, got, there's a lack of holiness. There's a lack of accountability in his life that ultimately takes him to that point. And so look at your leaders. I, I'm so glad that this church has, the, uh, has elders and that they hold one another accountable and that there's transparency and how they live and how they do their business because that's necessary. Um, those kinds of things, that they build up, right? They build up the church. They build up the leadership of the church. Um, secondly, he talks about manipulation, uh, taking personal agendas and, and casting them as God's word. Be careful for that. If you're listening to preachers, if you move away from here and you're looking at another church, be certain that the standards, the, the, the guidelines are from God's word and not man-made. And then thirdly, there's an avoidance of personal sacrifice, Um, and and public persecution. So someone who's afraid to take a bold stand, someone who builds a large following just by preaching love and grace and all those kinds of things without talking about the truth of judgment, the truth of God's wrath. Um, That's a lot of stuff. In context, I think we can simply summarize it uh, through what Jesus gave us in the sermon, right? The Beatitudes, the morals that he taught us in the sermon, look for these things in your teachers, uh, the, the living out the Beatitudes, the spiritual poverty, the hunger after righteousness, sexual purity, compassion, prayer. Does this person preach the true gospel, and does he live what he preaches? So the question was this. How do we identify false prophets? I think we can summarize it in, in three points. One, his message. Does he fall into either ditch of legalism or license? Two, his leadership. Does he manipulate out of selfish ambition or humbly point the flock to Jesus? And three, his lifestyle. Does he live out the gospel in his morals and his willingness to suffer? All right, last test. Uh, We're running out of time. Last test. Inspect your life. On what foundation have you built? Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now you all know the song, right? The foolish man built his house upon the sand, right? And then the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down and the floods came up. And you repeat that a few times. Some of you are looking at me like I'm nuts. You don't know this song, Right? And the house on the sand, what happened? Went flat. Or splat. I prefer splat. But you can say flat. That's fine. Jesus is speaking about judgment. One day we will stand before God and the foundation of our faith will be revealed. If you are in the two-thirds of Christians who struggle with doubt, that's terrifying. What if you thought your foundation was Jesus, but in the end you were wrong? I suggest that this image here, the house on the sand, the house on the rock, gives us one more test to evaluate our salvation. Way back a year ago when Hobson was preaching through the Minor Prophets, uh, we saw this principle over and over again. Judgment is destructive for the wicked and at the same time restorative for the believer. God ordained the same calamitous event be it the Babylonian captivity or the Assyrian invasion or choose your apocalypse to destroy evildoers while at the same time restoring his wandering children. So I want to give you one more image to help you interpret this image. Turn with me to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17. 
And actually, in his opening, um, Jason read a sister passage to this, which is Psalm 1. This is a very similar, same image here. But in Jeremiah 17, 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So picture a tumbleweed just shriveled up, rolling across the prairie. Verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search and test the mind and give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Verse 5 tells us that the wicked are tapped into their own strength. Their root, their foundation is false. When I was new to the ministry, I assumed that as people neared death, faced a death, life and death situation, that they would be inclined to turn to God. That assumption is false. When people are confronted with the reality of their own death, they usually grab tightly to whatever they already believe. I have seen many atheists, agnostics, um, members of, of various cults who at the moment of their death, they just grab so tightly onto those false beliefs. And it's a tragic thing. I, I believe that this is part of God's judgment where because they've refused him throughout their life as they near death, Without his grace, they will still hold on to that thing, whatever it is, other than turning to him. This is what Jeremiah describes here. Trusting in their own strength, they're tapped into a faulty foundation. And when the judgment comes, whatever it is, the flood, the, the heat, whatever it may be, they just grab more tightly to what they already assume is true. Verse 6 describes the spiritual drought, right? The heat will come. Verse 8 talks about... The, the, um, the godly person, the blessed person, who doesn't fear when the heat comes. And that heat is any type of judgment. It's any type of calamitous event, right? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, whatever it is, uh, whatever you're facing, the, the floods, the rains falling of Matthew 7, whatever that is, um, when it comes, which way, what, what are you going to tap into? What is your foundation? Where is your root Verses 7 through 8 show us the believer is rooted. The believer's house is built on life-giving truth. The heat still comes, right? We face the same stuff. The rains will come down. The floods will go up. The Chaldeans will invade. The S&P 500 will crash. The diagnosis still comes back cancer, but the believer presses into God. That's the difference. And so if you're sitting there going, I still don't know, you've been talking about all these different tests, you've been talking about different ways to evaluate, am I a believer or am I not a believer? How do you respond in the crisis? How do you respond when the rains start to fall, when the heat comes? Do you press into God or do you grab a hold of your own wisdom and strength? In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, right, when the floods come, do you, do you live the Beatitudes? In trial, do you press into God or trust your own wisdom? Do you take seriously Jesus' teaching on sexual purity, compassion, and prayer? This doesn't mean does your prayer life mirror a monk's. It just means do you pray the way, do you pray the things that Jesus said are important? Do you cherish the true gospel? Do you live what you proclaim to believe? I'm not talking about sinlessness, but the pursuit, the hunger for righteousness. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said this. I'm going to read it twice because he's a Puritan. He's wordy. But this is so sweet. The weakest Christian is as much justified, as much pardoned, as much adopted, as much united to Christ as the strongest, and hath as much interest and property in Christ as the highest and noblest Christian that breathes. Do you want me to read that again? I'm going to. It's wonderful. The weakest Christian has as much is as much justified, as much pardoned, as much adopted, and as much united to Christ as the strongest, 
and hath as much interest and property in Christ as the highest and noblest Christian that breathes. So you're standing on your foundation right now, every one of us is, and you're asking, is it sand or is it stone? And think back to the crisis. Where did your heart go? Did your heart panic and reach out for anything you could grab a hold of to save you? Or did your desire, maybe you're this weak Christian that Thomas Watson so gently describes, I'm sorry, Thomas Brooks so gently describes, and you go, I want Jesus. I, want, I hunger for righteousness. I'm not good at it, but I'm hungry for righteousness. And Thomas Brooks says, you've got as much of Jesus as the person who just suffers beautifully with faith that is exposed. Verses 9 through 10 confirm this. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? Don't trust your heart. Don't listen to PBS, right? Don't trust your heart. The wicked man's heart will betray him and lead him to destruction. The believer's heart will lie to him and cause fear and doubt. In Lynn's prayer this morning, she, she prayed this from John, 1 John 3, 19 through 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So listen, we come through the wicked gate alone, but nobody builds a house by themselves. If you struggle with doubt, talk to somebody. Don't trust your heart. It will lie to you. It will betray you. Talk to someone you trust, someone who knows you well, and ask them, do you see Christian fruit in my life? Do you see evidence that my foundation is Jesus? If you, only, uh, if you do this, if you try to live the Christian life alone, it will drive you to despair. God is greater than your heart. God wishes you to know that you are saved, and he's given you all these people to help you with that. So reach out to someone and say, help me discern. Help me walk through these tests. Do you see this in my life? Is there fruit there? To the three groups listening this morning, the message is the same for each of you. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you entered through that narrow gate alone, if you agreed with God that you're a sinner and cannot save yourself and cast yourself on the grace of God and Jesus, you are his. He knows you. Be careful not to confuse your faith by listening to sheep's and wolves' clothing. All right, listen to the truth. To any unbelieving friend who's listening this morning, maybe you've thought you were a Christian, but the storms in your life reveal otherwise, or maybe you've never put much thought into what Jesus demands from you, God wants you to be saved. So following the service, we will have people at the white flag over here. I encourage you, they, the, whoever's over there would love nothing more but to walk through the plan of salvation with you. So please, don't leave here today without hope in Jesus. Let me pray for us, and we'll be done.